Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Hello, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter Podcast. This is episode number 141. My guest for this episode is Danielle Da Silva. She is the founder and CEO of Photographers Without Borders. They work on incredible projects around the world with a strong focus on decolonization. And in our conversation, we get into what exactly that means. But she joined via what? Via WhatsApp. So we did this one remotely. I believe she's up near Toronto right now, but she's all over the world. So I was really fortunate to be able to get her in one place at one time to be able to record this conversation. So thank you, Danielle, for giving me your time. She's had some really uh, amazing uh, platforms that she's performed on and, and spoken on. She's got two TED Talks I would implore you to go to YouTube and check out those TED Talks. She talked at a Nat Geo Summit, and we talk about that. So happy that she joined uh, little old TV TV here to share her story with you all. This conversation like, conjured up all these memories of my own trips around the world, and uh, I love talking about uh, her time in Sumatra and her work with the orangutans. I remember when I was in Kuching, and I was hanging out with Luchin, so... Hello, Lucian. And he took me to a sanctuary that they have there. I, I might have talked about it when I recorded at that time. I don't really recall. But there was this incredible orangutan sanctuary where they roam freely. So some of them they hadn't seen. I think there was one that they hadn't seen for a few years, and they were just sort of hoping that the orangutan wasn't dead. And then it had just showed up because it's acres upon acres upon acres, and they're not, you know, there's no... Uh, real tracking other than sight and they put out food twice a day and that's when like all the tourists come and take pictures and things like that but they roam freely they're not caged or anything like that so there's a walkway that all of the tourists come during feeding time to walk and, and to see them and that, it's kind of roped off but if the orangutans want to j- jump over that rope and, and go down the the path they can and there was this big one that was lumbering down the walk and the handlers there the people that are working in the park they're like, get away, get away. Like, don't get close, don't get close. These things will rip your arms straight off your body. Like, it, they, they're so strong. If it gets a hold of your neck, it will, <laughs> it will pop your head right off. And this one came lumbering down the path, and all these tourists are running up to get their selfies with it and literally, like, turning their backs on this orangutan to take a picture. And you know, the, these rangers, the people working in the park, are just screaming at them, get away, get away, get away. And I'm watching it. I'm like, oh my God, I'm about to see a person get torn into pieces by an orangutan. Not that I wanted that to happen, but that would have been uh, quite the sight to say the least. So everyone eventually scattered, but it was amazing to me that like people are so concerned with their selfies that they were run up feet away from this orangutan to get their selfie. Incredible. It also reminded me of, um, I was hanging out near the river in Kuching one night. And there were all these young folks, young folks, oh my God, I sound so old. But there were these young people and they were hanging out, not like partying, but they were hanging out and having a good time and passing around a bottle. And they passed it over to me and they're like, hi, what's your name, whatever. And we're just hanging out and talking. And there was a couple with them and they were all friends. I think they had all worked at like a, some of the hotels along the main street there. And at one point, 
the the couple like leans in close to me and they're like, uh, I think you should get out of here. They're they're gonna want to rob you. And I'm like, mm, okay. <laughs> so I got up to go and I was hanging out with them with the couple for a little bit, but then I started getting like super weird vibes from them too. And so at one point they went to the bathroom and I just I just left. I ditched them. This is life on the road, folks. Life on the road when you're alone. <laughs> Mostly good times, but strange things do happen. But I also, you know, I had a lot of sentimental feelings for Indonesia as she was talking about Sumatra. So basically what I'm trying to tell you is I'm, I'm getting the itch really, really bad and I'm getting the calling and I got to get back out on the road. But that might be, ha- well, not that that might be happening. That is going to happen this year. Nothing that I can say is confirmed just yet, but... Um, I will be leaving again at some point this year. So if you enjoy these stories and enjoy the conversations I have with people around the world, you have that to look forward to. All right, folks, check out the show notes for this episode and you will find links to Photographers Without Borders. You'll find links to uh, Danielle's personal website and her Instagram as well. And uh, check them out. There's amazing content um, on all that stuff. But there's really cool short documentaries on the Photographers Without Borders website um, that I really got hooked on. We were talking about a couple of them in this episode, so go check those out. I really recommend the one on poaching in South Africa about the, the sharks and the shark fin soup. That one's pretty fascinating. I was in, uh, I think I was in Bangkok. I had bird's nest soup. Um, was it? Yeah, it was in Chinatown in Bangkok. And I saw shark's fin soup there, and I was just surprised like how... Uh, prevalent it was and just sort of like out in the open it was when I had presumed that in, you know, in, in a lot of places it was illegal, but I guess, I guess not, I guess in a lot of places it's still there. I guess it's a post to increase virility or, you know, whatever the superstitions are with that. But, uh, check out that documentary on, on the poaching in South Africa. It's really, really fascinating. And, uh, check out the show notes for my Patreon account as well. For all patrons, I'm sending out TV, TV t-shirts, I can customize that by color uh, if you have a preference for it. So Patreon is a subscription-based service where you can give monthly, and that will help these episodes to keep on coming. All right, folks, enjoy this episode with Danielle. First of all, thank you so much. <laughs> I know we've been uh, trying to put this together. I know you have two amazing TED Talks. Your organization's been on CNN and other like massive platforms. Uh, and I know I'm just a small guy here. So I really appreciate you giving me your time and giving me, um, or at least allowing me to provide you the platform to share your story. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I first heard of you and your work and your organization because I had a gentleman on the podcast two years ago who I still follow. His name is Justin Mott. And you, yeah, yeah, you recently um, were a colleague, I guess, at an event in Portugal that he spoke at and you spoke at, a National Geographic event. Uh, So I'm curious, 
what you presented or what you talked about at that conference? Yeah, I guess in a big way, I talked about decolonization, um, but a lot of that was also uh, my story and how I got started in the in the conservation photography field, I guess you could say, and how I started looking at everything through this kind of decolonized lens. Um, yeah, so it was hefty. <laughs> I'd imagine so, and that's um that's a topic that. I have here in my notes and we're going to get into, and I think that we could really dissect, but I want to maybe sort of start at the beginning because I see two things here, uh, if it's fair to say, with your work. There's the actual skill of photography, and then there's the specific stories uh, that interest you in terms of what you're sharing with the world. So I wonder first where your love of photography started and, and when you started taking pictures? Yeah, so I guess my love of photography started with painting, like paintings and other types of art. I was always really, really interested in um, all forms of art and was a painter myself. And then my dad's super nerdy and, and he's into astronomy and he's an astronomer <laughs> and he gave me like an old manual camera because he knew I just like loved like tinkering around and doing different things. So then I figured out how to make it work and I fixed it and then I started taking pictures and that's how the love of photography really came about because to me it was like painting with light and making art in a much faster way um, and in a way that also infused science, which was really important to me always. Um, and yeah, and then it just grew from there. I just always had a camera. I never really considered myself a photographer, though, until much later. All right. And I'll sort of, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I'll sort of maybe define um, decolonization and you, you, you correct me if, if it doesn't match with uh, your line of thinking, but people might be thinking, hey, um, my definition of what colonization is ended a long time ago. Um, but really, I think what you're, well, God, we could, we could go on and on here. But when we're talking about like neocolonialism, we're talking about uh, policies and actions, both by, well, by individuals, by governments, uh, by... Uh, multinational corporations that carry out policies that mirror uh, the same effects that colonialism had on uh, oppressed communities and countries. Does that sound about right? Yeah, super close, like to what I would consider like colonization as well. And I'd also add um, it's the extraction of resources or um, things that you find in the land uh, and oppressing people in order to do so. Um, that, that's something I'd add as well. So then what was it that first uh, opened you up to this or made you aware and made you want to become involved? Um, I think for me, it's just as I've been privileged enough to travel around the world, it's something I've just noticed. Um, I carry a really unique, perspective, I think, um, in this particular field, just because 
Um, I come from a really intersectional background. I'm a woman of color, you know, like I identify as queer. Like there's a lot of things that impact the way that I move around the world that just impacts the way that I see the world too. So like when I travel, sometimes I like, I want to be in the moment and just enjoy things, but I also can see all of the other dynamics that are working and all the power uh, inequities. And, you know, even as a photographer, when I talk about like decolonizing storytelling, I'm talking about, you know, um, how do we move away from extracting like people's stories and extracting something for our own benefit and turn that into something where we're like regenerating and giving back and, um, you know, all benefiting, you know, um, instead of utilizing, uh, like, the fr- like benefiting financially in many ways off of um, other people's oppression, right? Um, as a photographer, so I mean, on many levels, I think that 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 manifests itself in the world if we're not careful and if we're not aware. Yeah, so that's something that's sort of come up before. I've had you know a lot of folks on the podcast from a variety of different uh, interests and occupations, but I've had a lot of people who are either talking about or covering people who are oppressed or underrepresented or are impoverished. And I do think that's a a tricky situation to be in where, um, even for myself, like it's a fine line to balance between uh, sharing someone's story and sort of, um, I almost say it like, maybe this is like a terrible way to say it, but almost like I think of this like Twilight Zone episode where like, these explorers ended up on another planet and they ended up like being in the zoo. <laughs> so imagine like I, I walked the fine line between like uh, sharing someone's story and sort of like putting the spotlight on them as like some other sort of sensationalized thing. Does that make sense to you? Oh yeah, totally. And I think that a lot of people, um, this isn't to like point fingers, but it's just something to be wary of, you know, like, because I think the road to hell is always paved with good intentions. Right. So, um, I think that, um, a lot of the times when we come from places of privilege and obviously to be behind the lens is like already a, a power position. Like you're the one with the power to take a photograph, to, to take someone's story. And then also to, shape how you're going to talk about that because some like the different different people behind the lens will look at that same situation totally differently right photograph it differently explain it differently and then you know how they're participating then in like that that game of power when they're posting it or sharing it or framing an issue right um so that's kind of what where i come from in that sense and then yeah yeah. I'm going to I'm going to break from the timeline in my notes here for a second because uh I have a question in here in my notes that directly relates to something you said. Um I started reading this book called The The Looting Machine and the author is Tom Burgess. And this book is about uh resource extraction from Africa, primarily oil and mineral resources. Um and how it's like deeply tied to neo neo-colonial practices and policies. Uh, but something he says in in like the preface of that book or the author's note right away is that in in doing this work, he became incredibly depressed uh, and like introverted and had to go to, to see a psychologist and was diagnosed with PTSD. Um, something I was thinking about with some of the really heavy work you do and in particular, I, there was one project or, or photo you had taken of 
um, a young woman, I think her name was Rupi, or um, here it's in my notes, uh, Rupa, sorry, in the north of India who was a victim of an acid attack. Um, and that's, that, that's really heavy, you know? And I would imagine like the, the urge is to, to be strong and objective and there to report, but I would imagine that seeing difficult things over and over again would take a toll on the person who is either reporting or behind the lens. And I was wondering if that is a phenomenon you've ever felt and if you are deeply affected by the things you're essentially reporting on. I think um, earlier on, um, things affected me a lot more. Now I find it more regenerative, uh, personally. Um, I know a lot of people who do really heavy um, photojournalism work, like Daniel Dan- Barilag, like who was also at the um, Nat Geo uh, Exodus uh, conference that I spoke at. He, you know, does some really heavy work and like where he's around dead bodies constantly oh. and like always at the forefront of these really like heart-wrenching stories and so for me I feel like I'm lucky because a lot of the focus on what I do is on you know yes these are young women who've suffered or any women who've suffered acid attacks um, or human trafficking or whatever Um, but there's a lot of um, whenever I'm doing a story like that I'm always trying to find who are the heroes who's doing something about it like who's uh, kind of addressing this on a local level instead of leaving it up as, as like a, you know, here's some like more messed up stuff that's happening around the world um, and no one's doing anything, you know. In some cases, there isn't anyone doing anything and that's when we need to draw attention to those things. Um, but in terms of the mental health aspect, I feel like I've done a lot of healing work on, on myself. Um, so it's allowed me to carry more space and hold space for those types of that type of pain that exists in the world, if that makes any sense. And like, again, my positionality in the world is just unique. Like I'm a sexual assault survivor myself. I've had a lot of really like messed up things happen and done a lot of healing from that too. So for me, it's like a lot of the people I meet and I'm able to like help in any way with storytelling. It's like super nourishing for me. Wow. Um, yeah, that, that's also heavy. Thank you for sharing. Um, I'm sure that's, that's a tough thing to talk about. Um, so where are you in your life and like, what is the impetus for, I guess, essentially starting, uh, photographers without borders? Well, uh, the impetus for starting photographers without borders was seeing a need. Um, I think two needs for me. One is that there were lots of small organizations, you know, when I started out, I was working with the United Nations and I saw the way that, you know, development can be done at a four-star level, five-star level. But, you know, a lot of the time those projects fail. And what I noticed was that smaller organizations, smaller community development um, initiatives tend to be much more successful. And also, I really think that neocolonialism exists in that, that framework as well of development. So, um, when it's local community members who are, you know, kind of at the forefront of solving their issues and are given support, I think that's always the best way to address things. Um, and, you know, the research also shows that that's the case. And so uh, I saw a need where a lot of these organizations didn't get the, they don't have the capacity, you know, when they're like dealing with frontline work to be thinking about storytelling. And like, those are kind of like frivolous 
items for them to, to have. So PWB Photographers Without Borders really solved that issue. And then on the other on the other end of things, you know, with the commercialization of the media, like I think it's we have a dearth of really like not just positive feel good stories, but stories that really show how we can be mechanisms of change um, and stories that give examples of other people who are, you know, kind of just going, going for it. And like who have much less than any of us in the West have in, in the global North have, um, but are able to like do things and are doing such positive things and how nourishing that can be for your life too, you know, because, we have epidemics of like, you know, depression and, and suicide and all of these things in the West. And um, I don't think it's for no reason. I think, you know, we're, we're largely disconnected from each other through these extractive colonial practices that we've become accustomed to. Yeah. And I think if anybody really wants to like sort of uh, dissect that or extrapolate from that, you have a TED talk all about uh, grassroots movements. I think it's on YouTube, uh, but it's also on your website. So people could go to the show notes for this episode and they can find that. Um, in a, like a logistics sense, I guess, for the organization, when I go on the website, I see like all these potential projects. Um, so are those open for people to apply to and who, is it you or is it a team of people who are creating those projects and um you know i see locations and what looks like almost dates but some of them say like 1952 venezuela so uh just talk about sort of like the logistics of how projects happen yeah so at the core of the organization it's basically a volunteer program um if you want to put it in those terms and what we do is we over the years have developed really strong relationships with different small community organizations. And so we put them onto our website, like whenever they need new materials for something that's really, you know, um, pressing or if there's like an event happening, that's going to be really like photographically like interesting and also beneficial for them to have like new material, video or photo. We put them up, we put these things up as an assignment. So we'll like determine how long it has to be that if it's that we need a photographer there for, um, how, like what the deliverables are going to be, all of those types of things. So in that way, it's like, it functions like almost as an assignment. And then after the assignment's done, um, we take the images or the media and we create a, a campaign for them. Um, and so I hope that's making some sense. So basically when the assignments go on our website, our members can then, and so it's a membership based organization um, and our members can then apply for, for any of the assignments that are up there. Um, and so we have almost a thousand members and then we have wow. like usually 50 to 60 assignments a year. Um, so people are kind of like, uh, applying and being shortlisted and then, you know, being selected for each assignment. And then it's a fundraising process from there of like fundraising the, the cost of, of all the logistics and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but what I've wanted to do with the organization is like the long game plan is to have an agency. Um, and that's kind of where we're at now, um, where we're working with bigger NGOs, you know, bigger organizations that, um, are able to, to pay for storytelling and for campaigns and all of that type of stuff. So from our core members, like who we like love having on assignment to take beautiful photos and are like amazing storytellers and like ethics is a huge thing for us too. We want to work with people who are ethical. We're just trying to like build a stronger brand of like media maker. Um, and so those, those storytellers then are selected on for assignments that are, that are actually paid. So the, 
core of our organization is a volunteer program, but we're trying to kind of like reverse engineer an agency out of it so that we can um, service larger organizations with different needs. Got you. So it's kind of like a sliding scale. An organization approaches us, like we'll have like for ones that can't like have a very small marketing budget or no marketing budget, they'll go to our volunteer program. And if they have a larger budget, then they'll go to our um, agency. Okay. I have questions about specific projects too and places that you've been. Um, one of them is close to me. Uh, I have, I don't know, I don't know why, but you develop special connections to places and Indonesia is a place that is really special to me and a place, it, uh, you know, I travel a lot, obviously, so like people are always like, What's, where's your favorite place? And that's like an impossible thing to answer, but um, for me, like an easy answer, I guess, is Indonesia. I love Indonesia because it's so vast and diverse and so different depending on which island you're on and all that stuff. So um, you have been heavily involved in a project dealing with orangutans and um, I, I spent two weeks last year in uh, Kuching in Borneo, which is, you know, Malaysia, but in both Malaysia and in Indonesia, orangutans are um, endangered and there's deforestation uh, I'm wondering if you could just uh, speak about your experiences and what you're doing there and what the project is. Yeah, so I've been working very closely with an organization in uh, Sumatra uh, for the past five years. And yeah, I mean, like they just do conservation in the most incredible way that I've ever seen. Um, and, you know, like I work with a lot of organizations. I'm familiar with a lot of organizations from constant, you know, the big ones to the small ones. And so, um, yeah, I think first of all, it's, it's locally run, like completely Indonesian run and it's um, all grassroots led. And the reason why they're so successful and they're incredibly successful um, with the work that they do is because they totally, they understand the people. They they know the language. They know the communities. They're in, like they're they're the people that they work with are from the community. So it's really like just brilliant. Um, but also like you know the brilliance comes by way of like having to like scrap be scrappy. You know um, they weren't just like endowed with millions of dollars. They have to be scrappy and like use every dollar like has to stretch. Um, so what they do is they not only like they started with the intention of, um, educating people with, about orangutans, but then they grew into an organization that now rescues the orangutans from different situations. So from, um, animal trafficking, from zoos, um, it's actually illegal to keep orangutans in any type of place in Sumatra, in Indonesia, and I think should be all over the world. Um, and from situations of, uh, you know, people keeping them as pets and things like that. And uh, now they do all kinds of things around orangutan conservation. So they're doing reforestation. They're actually like reclaiming illegal palm oil plantations, um, cutting them down and then reforesting them with native trees. Um, and like so many people thought this was impossible for so long, but they've like shown that it's like completely possible and they've developed methods for um, forest regeneration in other parts of the world. They send their staff now all over the world to different you know, conferences on reforestation to like talk about how they do it. You know, it's like really crazy. Um, the guy who founded it, Pandit Hedizizwoyo, he's like one of my best friends and he's just like incredible, has like a great story and came from a small village, worked his way up, like got scholarship after scholarship when everyone told him you can't do it. Like, you know, went to Leeds University, Oxford, you know, 
Um, and now he's like a Nat Geo explorer and oh. just such a humble, amazing dude who shows like, you know, this is what you can do if you put your mind to something, you know, like he came from nothing. And now he's like leading this orangutan conservation effort in Sumatra. So um, I've been working with them for five years, like I said, and um, it's just been transformative, I guess. I, I, I admire the work. Um, I love the people. I love the food. I love the, like you said, like Indonesia is just like one of the best places in the world. And um, yeah, so over the years, using the power of the lens, we've helped conserve more than 10 hectares of uh, forest on the edge of the Ganung Lusur um, uh, National Park and um, done a lot to fundraise to, to help with the orangutan like adoption program. Um, just like a lot, just a lot of different things. I've taken a lot, I take two groups a year to do a really intimate workshop uh-huh. uh, around storytelling. And, you know, I talk about decolonization in my workshops, I talk about ethics, but a lot of it's just storytelling and um, how to be just a phenomenal storyteller. All right, I'd love to pick your brain about this for a second. Um, and feel free to educate me if I'm wrong. Um, I have not been to Sumatra. Uh, Sumatra is west of Java. So Java is where you'll find Jakarta and south of like peninsular Malaysia, the part that's not Borneo. Um, from So I've had someone on the podcast while I was in Indonesia who talked about palm oil and I've had conversations with people and I met a really wonderful man in Borneo who named Lucian. So Lucian, thank you. I know you listen to the podcast too, so shout out to you. Um, and he took me to a sanctuary outside of Kuching to go see orangutans. And it was really, really cool. Um, but through those conversations, I learned that in less developed parts of Indonesia, so rural parts of Indonesia, um, there is um, difficulty in access to like adequate healthcare. There is difficulty getting access to uh, education. And then there's also difficulty getting access to uh, financial means, right? And so when I say like it's less developed, I don't mean necessarily like it needs to mirror, mirror like Western development or like American urbanization. But in these areas that are quite rural in Indonesia, you like you have the highest air, uh, highest incidences of stunting in terms of people's health and, and their growth, right? Literally how tall people get. Uh, and that's due to lack of healthcare and access to like, you know, nutrition. And so in a lot of these areas, especially Eastern Indonesia and like Papua, you see palm oil and you see deforestation and, to me, like I'm, I'm not advocating for deforestation at all, but it, you almost understand it uh, if that's fair to say. Whereas, like poaching or straight up kidnapping of of orangutans to put into zoos and things like that, that seems like a black and white kind of evil issue. Whereas palm oil, maybe at least to me, seems less black and white in the sense that, like, if people want access to you know, healthcare and education, things like that, and they need the money to do so, they need a way to get the money. Um, I wonder if that rings true to your experiences. Um, and if you've, you know, seen like, are there, are there other means in Sumatra for people who are living in a rural setting or in like rainforest or something like that to, 
to have access to the things that they need for um, like a healthy and fulfilling life? I know that's a long <laughs> question, but yeah, no, that's really great. I'm glad you asked because I missed that piece uh, before. But I definitely don't see palm oil as a black and white issue. I don't even see poaching as a black and white issue. Um, I did a documentary called Beyond the Gun or about poaching in uh, South Africa. Um, and that's like mm. a window to a bigger documentary that I'd love to do. Oh. Anyway, but the whole point is, is that, yes, of course, I think like livelihoods. And that goes back to that neocolonialism thing, right? Um, livelihoods are super important. I think that, you know, when you're a country that, especially, I don't think many people know the history of Indonesia. Like, Indonesia's gone through deadly, you know, civil wars, had a huge, huge, um, a lot of issues with colonization all throughout the years, but more recently, most recently by the Dutch, right, who brought... A company! A, a company! Like, colonized by a company. <laughs> Crazy. Sorry. 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 I'm interrupting you. That's okay. Yeah, but you know what I'm saying. So the Dutch were the most re- were the most recent to colonize. They brought over the palm oil plant from Africa. It's like not even a native uh, species, and they turned Sumatra into this like palm oil like landscape. Um, so yes, of course. Now that like people, the country's taken its independence and sees this as a way that they have you know, they can, they can move forward and and develop from like all all of this poverty and genocide and all of this stuff that's been happening. I think nobody, it's nobody's right to be like, yeah, no, you can't do that. You know, when many of the mines and many of the palm oil plantations are owned by Canadian and Chinese, other countries anyways. So, um, you know, we're not doing any less harm in that regard here in Canada or in the U S or anywhere else, you know? So, when you talk about multinational companies, like it becomes really difficult. But Indonesia itself is prospering because of palm oil, and again, it's nobody's right to tell them, you know, you can't, shouldn't be doing that. I think what I love about OIC, the organization I work with, Orangutan Information Center, is that um, while they're doing all of this work, they're making sure that they're reclaiming the illegal palm oil plantations. So a lot of these companies or communities will say, oh, we didn't see the boundaries because the boundaries aren't clearly marked of the national park, right? So then they'll take out hundreds of hectares of land of forests and build and create palm oil plantations. Um, So they're focused really on like the illegal palm oil expansion, which I think is really smart. And they participate in like the responsible, sustainable, uh, the roundtable on sustainable palm oil, RFPO, like, um, you know, conferences and gatherings and make sure that their voices, that they're there, that they're heard. And not to say that a lot of these companies, you know, do infringe and and do this on purpose, but um, that's where their focus is. And then they're also focusing on transitioning people to different livelihoods. Um, One of the biggest issues that people from villages, rural Indonesia, Sumatra, hot face that you're talking about is water shortages. So because of palm oil, like each palm oil tree sucks at 10 liters of water a day that adds up when you're looking at rows and rows and rows of palm oil and you know if you've been to Sumatra like from when you land to when you go anywhere all you see is palm oil um so it takes up a lot of water so villages that had streams and you know nice clear running water now have flash floods where people die you know like it's a real threat and they have uh, because you know the tree the ground can't hold water anymore and don't have access to clean water where you know some people who are making $200 a month the equivalent to $200 a month, they're paying $60 a month to have water delivered to their house. 
So, I mean, all of that doesn't make any sense, right? Um, so there's costs as well to the palm oil, you know, and other high-intensity um, crops. And when you have monocrops, it's always a problem. And, you know, and people are seeing that, you know. And, and Sumatra particularly was devastated by a tsunami in 2004, the same one that, you know, um, affected Thailand. And not many people knew about the Sumatra side of it. And uh, so people are really well aware of like the damage that's happening to the land and, and the people that feel those effects the most are the rural individuals who are, you know, who also want to make a living and have a car and, you know, have social status and all of that and have every right to do that. Um, but yeah, um, the, the beautiful thing about OIC's like restoration and reforestation programs is that some of these people from these villages who've now gone into the re restoration work are seeing as they restore the forest, the water come back, they're seeing the animals come back. And so like that you can actually repair the damage that's been done. And so that's positive. Wow. Okay. Thank you. A couple, just bunch of things like popping in my brain. Um, right now, like everyone listening, like stop for a second. Like uh, Jakarta is underwater. Like it's already been sinking, but like literally is underwater right now in a horrifying way. Not covered at all uh, on American media because we are so consumed by Trump's bullshit. But like, pause for a second. Go check out Wow Shack. It's like they they do a lot of like funny media, but they also have a lot of like videos and stuff. And you'll see how uh, Jakarta is underwater. Um, but in, in regards to palm oil, like you talked about it being like so ubiquitous in Sumatra, in the way that we think about like soy or corn. If you are in Indonesia. Every single snack in the store, if you look at it, palm oil. Like palm oil is in everything from peanut butter to chips to whatever. Um, so I was thinking about that too. But uh, going back to like one of your earlier points, um, and one of the reasons why I was like so excited to have you is you mentioned the documentaries in the South American one, uh, sorry, South South African one about um, like poaching sharks and sharks fin soup. Uh uh, also pause after you check out wow Shack, go to the photographers without borders website. You have like a dozen or more, um, sort of short documentary documentaries, like 10 to 20 minutes each. And they're all like really beautiful, like shot beautifully, really, uh, really wonderful music in the background. Um, and I have here in my notes, like specifically talking about like the connection to, um, orangutans is the, the South Africa documentary and the shark's fin soup. So um, I would like really recommend everybody go check that out because those are, those are really, really great. Um, I have a, an, another location. Okay. I know I'm, I am rambling, but uh, this is really exciting for me. Um, I've really, really wanted someone to come on to talk about Hawaii. Um, I have a, uh, someone I met through the podcast who's now a friend is a mixed martial arts champion for Bellator. Her name is Alima uh, Lee McFarlane. And she's from Hawaii. She lives in San Diego now. Uh, but she does a lot of activism for, um, I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, but the, the Mauna, the Mauna Kea. And, um, yeah, Mauna Kea. Mauna Kea. Okay, cool. And she, she just defended her championship and she's on like a celebratory tour. So uh, I can't have her on here right now. I had her on twice. But I saw that she went there. And uh, maybe this is unfair to ask you to explain what is happening, but it would really be great if you could say, like, why you were there, um, what exactly the issue is, and, uh, like, what work you were doing. That would be great. 
Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that's a <laughs> big one. Um, well, first and foremost, I do a lot of work around Indigenous uh, communities. I mean, at the forefront of decolonization and addressing colonialism are Indigenous people all over the world. Um, and so uh, when when the resistance was kind of forming in Hawaii, so what what's happening there is that um, the governor of Hawaii, David E.J., wants to... Uh, build, and, and many of the universities surrounding the University of Hawaii um, want to build a telescope. It's called the 30-meter telescope. It's meant to be one of the largest in the world. Not the largest, but one of the largest. Um, and my dad's an astronomer, by the way. Like, I have to mention that again right now. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, and so, I love astronomy. We all love astronomy and science. Um, but the deal here is, is that Mauna Kea is one of the sites that were proposed for this telescope. There's also other sites um, in different parts of the world, um, particularly in the Canary Islands, which is, you know, where they're trying to shift it towards. Um, but uh, Mauna Kea is a sacred mountain. It's like the most, it's the most revered sacred mountain to all Hawaiians, native Hawaiians. Um, it's the source of all the water on the island of Hawaii, a big island. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's just something where people go to bury their pico, which is like the belly button, the umbilical cord of their babies. Wow. Um, it's a, it's a sacred spot. And, uh, you know, it's not a, it's not a small telescope building. It's an 18 story building and it's going to cause them to have to drill into the ground and have to disturb the mountain. And there's so much, um, around that, that is just, it feels like after all of the, taking and all of the extraction and all of the, you know, and, and when I talk about extraction with regards to Hawaii, Native Hawaiians, I'm talking about culture, I'm talking about language, I'm talking about installing military and weapons and blasting sites all over Hawaii. Hawaii, has been, Hawaii is a beautiful place, but if you look closely, it's one of those places where I can't enjoy myself because I'm constantly like thinking about all of the militarization, about um, the heavy, heavy colonization of that island that people weren't even allowed to speak their language or sing their songs or their ceremonies or wear their regalia or anything like that for so long. And now it's been turned into like, a, you know, like people are, you can walk, you know, to an ABC store and find a, a lay in a, a hula skirt, like everywhere. Like it's horrible. You know, it's just, that's, that's cultural appropriation on crack in Hawaii. But um Anyway, so the fact that they want to just build this telescope with no consultation, with no, um, you know, proper discussion with Native Hawaiians is like an extension of that extraction of that rape of that um, taking without asking. And, you know, like it's something that Native Hawaiians have been unable to resist in the past effectively because, again, like all of these things, residential school, you know, taking away of culture and language causes people to become traumatized and to disperse and to disconnect from each other. Now, however, after all these years, all the elders have gotten together. They've been teaching the young ones the language and the culture and all of these things. So their resistance has been much stronger than it has been in the past. Because this isn't the first time they've proposed these telescopes, this kind of a, a telescope. And they have like 13 other telescopes up there that are, half of them are decommissioned or not working. Um, but this is the biggest proposed kind of um, development. And so the elders, the Kapuna, they were the first to kind of stand in the road, the Mauna Kea access road and say, no, you cannot build on this mountain, on this Mauna. Um, and then after that, they like all of the young ones came and it was like a 
hugely Hawaiian resistance. Um, and so one of my good friends, Nikki, um, uh, she told me that, you know, they need some help with the Canadian side of the media. So, uh, nine days in, I think, no, it was actually only a couple of days into like the, the resistance camp that we decided, okay, we're going to go down. But before going, like, you know, and this is where I talk about decolonizing storytelling. We made sure we asked, you know, we asked the local Hawaiian media team, do you need help? Like, do you want us to come? Do you want, uh, you know, like the Canadian kind of uh, frame to this as well? And they said, yes, please come. So we came, we camped out on the Mauna for, uh, almost 10 days together and I stayed a little longer oh. and just, you know, took photos, um, like gathered stories, you know, talked to their lawyer, talked to all of the kind of like the heads of the camp and, and where they, we were there when the rock came to visit, like all of a sudden, all of these celebrities were coming like to pay their respects and to kind of show their support, which was really just like amazing. Like people are calling it kind of like the standing rock of Hawaii. Yeah. Um, and it really is, but, it's different because it's an island and it's different because it's largely Hawaiian led. Like it's Hawaiians coming from all over the place and Polynesians and people from Tonga and like everywhere, you know, like coming to support. So that's a small piece of what was happening there. So we were just, you know, doing photographs and stories for different uh, media. Do you know like where that's at right now? Like I, I, I think I had seen even in your stories that like a, a library had been knocked down like what's the current status of that project um so the status is that the governor has uh, announced that they're going to um take down like the kind of police presence uh in exchange for uh because workers like people that were working at the other tel- uh, observatories and like tourists and things like that weren't able to get up to Mauna Kea so there's lots of complaining you know going on so they kind of made like a truce to allow some traffic to go up in exchange for you know kind of demilitarizing deep taking down the police forces that are there um but they're still keeping a small camp and making sure that there's a close watch on everything and it's kind of like they've developed a really strong social media president presence. So like anyone who's kind of watching and following, if they were called to come to the Mauna to protect it, they would come in droves. Wow. I know that like, all right, so I'm a, I'm a dude from New York. Like no one needs me to tell the story of Hawaii. Right. But, um, this is my podcast, so I will provide an anecdote. <laughs> um, you know, I visited Hawaii for the first time at the end of my long trip abroad um, at the end of 2018. And I came to see Alima Malay to see her fight in um, Blaisdell Arena in Honolulu. So it was my first time there. And I guess I sort of understand that maybe some people are like, I, I like, finding it difficult that nowadays like so many things are being highlighted and they're like, wow, I just want to enjoy myself. Uh, and I want to go to Waikiki and I just want to sit on the beach and have my Mai Tai or whatever and not think about things. But the impression that I got when I came away from Hawaii was that this is a state in the United States. But if you think about something like Hawaii or New Jersey, they couldn't be more different that like Hawaii to me felt like a nation Um, because there is a a shared culture, language, customs, beliefs, lifestyle, cuisine that is very different from any state you will get in the continental United States. 
Um, it is a Pacific Island nation, essentially. Um, and so I do, like, probably in line with the beliefs of you and your organization, like, I believe that, like, those things should take precedence uh, to the culture that it has been imposed on it uh, through, like you said, colonization and, like, um, annexation um, and... Yeah, like it, it to me, it, it felt different. Um, it felt special, and I had attended an after party for Lima Lage. Like she won her fight there, and I went to a barbecue at her home, and there was traditional music, and they were dancing, and it it felt really cool and special. And there was like a great reverence for Hawaiian culture. Um, so yeah, like I'm not necessarily adding much to the story, but I can understand at least through my own anecdotes that. Um, there's something really special there that needs to be respected and preserved. And I guess in that sense, I would, you know, give my support to the people who are trying to keep their culture and their beliefs intact without it you know, being imposed upon. If yeah. That's a light way of saying it. Yeah. I mean, Hawaii, we could go on for days about Hawaii, but Hawaii was always like a sovereign nation. Like it was like a, had its own kingdom and that was, taken by force, you know, we can't forget that. And so I think that every place, even though New Jersey is different and like unique in its own way too, like all of these places were once very different places with very different customs and languages and people and all of this was imposed, you know, in terms, and when I say all of this, I'm talking about like this, uh, especially North America, you know, this colonial type of outlook and way of being, um, and there are languages all around us that are, you know, uh, and communities and cultures all around us that we don't know about that exist in our communities and have existed for thousands of years before, you know, everywhere in the world, really. Like if you, if you really go deeper and deeper. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I can't add to that point. <laughs> You're absolutely correct. Um, you are a Sony alpha female. <laughs> what is this and like where like where in the world has this taken you yeah um sony alpha female is like a grant award um for women uh that sony has kind of created it started it's almost like an ambassadorship but um it's awarded to five to six creators a year uh just, they've got their second cohort now um, and from what I gather so far, <laughs> it's like being an ambassador, but you're a woman and you're trying to break the glass ceiling and you get some money to do a project and you got a mentor. And my mentor was Christina Mittermeier, who is amazing, um, to help you kind of get to the next level in your career. Um, and then you get invited to all the Sony events and stuff and it's fun and awesome. <laughs> Answer your question. I guess, like, it, where has it taken you? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> this seems like a really big deal, no? Like, you're, um, you're Indiana Jones. Yeah, well, with, with the Sony Alpha Female, like, whole thing, like, I've been able to finish my first feature documentary, which ah. is called Reckoning with the Wendigo. And that's, <laughs> guess what? It's about decolonization. <laughs> <laughs> it's about, um, colonization and capitalism in Canada and it talks about like the wow. establishment of Canada and how that's kind of um, manifesting itself in the present day in northern communities so it's 
it's and it's, it uses the Wendigo as allegory for capitalism and colonialism, and the Wendigo is like this dark spirit that yeah. consumes everything around it until it has nothing left to consume but its own children and other people. And so, yeah, reckoning with the Wendigo. Um, with that funding, I finished that, and I was also able to go to the Sony World Photo Awards and which is like the Oscars of photography. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's what it felt like. <laughs> and then uh, went to like Sedona, Arizona, went to a bunch of places. It's all over the States, really, and England. Yeah, I mean, come on. That's exciting, no? Like, uh, uh, do you ever step back and think like... amazing. Yeah. Okay. It's been amazing. I don't know what else to say. I just, um, it was like during the six months that the program was kind of uh, happening, it was just like one amazing to meet the other Sony Alpha females because they were really cool. Um, and yeah, I guess in terms of why it exists and what it is, it's really meant to address this kind of issue that of female photographers being underrepresented. Um, I think, I don't know, in my, in my view, I think it was somewhat of a response to some of like the ambassadorships that were coming out from other camera companies and like just the lack of attention to women as photographers and this kind of like argument of, oh, well, you know, like we base our decisions on merit and we can't find any like talented females. So Tony Alpha Female is kind of like that answer. It's like, well, check this out. Like there's all these women and like 6,000 women a year are applying to this program. And so clearly there's like a lot of women in this field. Um, and let's like showcase them and give them some support so that they can be more visible. And um, you know what I mean? Like not have to work through all these other systems of power and privilege to to have that attention. So it makes any sense. Yeah, that is really cool. I, I don't know. I think that's super exciting. Um, I have this like quest to have every country in the world either represented or talked about at some point um, in the in the lifetime of this podcast. And there's a place you've been that I'm like infinitely curious about that I'm going to get to someday and I haven't had talked about it all on this podcast yet. And that is Mongolia. Um, and I just like would love to hear about your experiences there and like what you were doing there and if there were any projects you were working on there. Yeah. So in Mongolia, Mongolia is a rapidly changing place. So when people think of Mongolia, they think of like, you know, eagles and hawks and uh, eagle hunters and, you know, people in nomadic dress and nomads. Um, but, you know, it's interesting. You go to Ulaanbaatar, which is the capital city, and it's so, it's so um, just futuristic. It's It's got a little bit of the past, like a lot of the Genghis Khan statues and stuff that it's like, it's something from the future. Um, and when you leave Ulaanbaatar, then suddenly you're surrounded by like steppe and fields and um, all of this like beautiful changing landscape, mostly flat. Um, but what we were doing there, and one of the things that has made the country, you know, more prosperous is mining um, and mining for copper specifically. 
Um, but uh, as you leave the city, like you start seeing like these national parks, and there are a lot of um, like nomads, people that live out in the the, the different geographical regions. Um, and live off the land in yurts or gurs, as they are referred to. So we were working with an organization that basically utilizes the power of capitalism and tourism to help safeguard some of those communities and ways of life. Um, so kind of like a tough, it's tough because Mongolia's herders and nomads are basically given like parcels of land now, like whereas before they would have been able to, you know, go across the land, you know, we're like living with the land instead of like, you know, being told this is where you can stay and this is where you can go in summer and this is where you can go in winter. You know, it's not very like, it's not exactly in line with how they used to live. Anyway, there's a lot at stake here because with climate change, um, you know, people that rely on the land in Mongolia rely on animals. Like they need horses, they need goats, they need livestock. They rely, a lot of their diet is milk and meat tons of milk and meat all day um, with some vegetables in there. And like, you know, to get water, you need a horse. Like you need to get, take your horse to the river to like have your bath. Like if you want to have a bath and then you have to carry pails of water back. Like we never had showers while we were staying in Mongolia. Like very rarely. Um, I smelled like a horse the whole time. (laughs) And um, the whole idea there is, 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 yeah, it's, it's tough. I always find like ecotourism or these like tourism kind of projects like difficult, but at the end of the day, like the land is, is finite and the nomads are growing. And then again, with like climate change, um, there's a lot of drought happening uh, with all of the animals and livestock that they rely on dying in like thousands, hundreds of thousands um, every summer. So it's, it's like, it's really tough, right. To like maintain your way of life. Um, it's more attractive to like send your kids to school and like have them leave that way of life. Right. But then it's also like, you know, this concept of preservation of like preserving an amber. It's also kind of unhealthy. Like it's, it's healthy to adapt and to change and to, you know, so this is an organization that we found that we could work with. Um, this is like one of the only organizations in Mongolia that does this kind of work. So, um, that's what we were doing. And we did a workshop in conjunction with this organization. Um, so yeah, it was really powerful and wow. really moving. And, um, I definitely can't wait to go back there. I have some Mongolian blood in me, so it's like I feel really good there. <laughs> uh, I can't believe that we're, this is episode 141 and I've never like outright said, hey, listeners, keep a notebook while you listen. But this is a great episode to keep a notebook because we keep talking about like uh, other things that you need to check out, but sort of maybe unrelated. Sorry. Du- <laughs> no, 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 it's, it's perfect. But I guess what, what I'm about to say is like unrelated to directly what you're saying, there's a National Geographic piece that I saw maybe like two months ago that's freaking fascinating about Ulaanbaatar and pollution. Um, and it's a really well-written article. Just go to Google, put in National Geographic Ulaanbaatar, and like it's probably the first thing that comes up. And really like stunning photographs about like how polluted the city is. Um, again, like maybe unrelated to directly what you're saying, but just that, that uh, sort of triggered that in my mind. Um, I'm going to ask you about one more place, and then I'll, I'll start to wrap up here. 
Uh, unfortunately, some of us have to work in the morning. But um, I've seen a lot of work with India and uh, going to butcher the pronunciation. I'm really sorry, but Jodhapur. Uh, I hope that's close. Um, and specific, <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> and specifically with like um, female youth and maybe non-binary people and young women. Uh, I was just wondering if you could share what that work was. Yeah, I worked. Oh, I work a great deal in India on so many different things. Um, but one of the things that keeps bringing me back is the Gulabi gang of Jodhpur. And Gulabi means pink. Um, and it comes from the word Gulab, which means rose. And it comes from this group of women um, from a different community that started dressing in pink and kind of like carrying out vigilante justice, let's say. Whoa. Um, to kind of like take back their power. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, going around beating up people with sticks and stuff just to, like, kind of, like, get the point across that domestic violence is not okay and, you know, beating up your wife is not okay and raping your raping women is not okay. Like, because that's, you know, India is such a diverse, gigantic place and every place is different. Um, but there is, and, you know, my theory, of course, is that it's a result, partially a result of British colonization that kind of, like, really disrupted the, uh, the the systems and the ways that things that things were but you know and I'll introduce alcoholism and all these other things that are not compatible with the culture um, but you know it's created this really big problem with like violence and um, violence against women specifically and so there's an organization I work with which is phenomenal and um, like Deepa Mehta is one of the patrons of the board She's an amazing female Indian uh, director, if you're not aware. And uh, they do just like this this incredible programming. Again, grassroots, again, small, like community-led. The guy who runs it, who started it, him and his family, like they have an incredible story as well. Um, and they're also in one of those little documentaries you were talking about that's on our website. So uh, it just like some of the stories coming out of there are just, incredible and like every time I go I'm moved by something like the women wow. there are just badass like you don't see Indian women like that every every day you know uh, <laughs> so they do empowerment programs they do schools and things like that but they teach them self-defense they um, in Jodhpur specifically it's extremely conservative um, there's a lot of problems with female infanticide so killing young girls or selective abortion um like all of these things, especially in the desert communities. Um, and so this organization addresses that and, and it not only empowers women, but also makes like families stronger. They do counseling, they have an SOS helpline. So for women that are in really messed up situations where they can't get help and the police in India are like, really like just not, you know, want to, yeah, if you have problems, like they're not really going to help you. Um, and there's so many laws protecting husbands and protecting men that like, you know, it's kind of just pointless to go the legal route. Um, so they're really doing something really big. Um, and just by, you know, having the women dressing in pink and having this kind of presence, like people are now, I feel like behaving a lot differently in the city itself. Like I feel it's become a lot safer in the time that I've been there, I feel like um, people are a lot more respectful towards women. Like there's just like an attitude change that I've noticed and 
it's really amazing. Well, hopefully, you know, the work that you're doing is, you know, helping to implement that change and to illuminate things. Um, you know, normally I say, hey, plug whatever you're going to plug. But I think by now people know, go to the show notes for this episode and I'll have a link to to your personal, you know, uh, Instagram account, but also all the Photographers Without Border stuff. So website, Instagram, you can go, like I said, all these documentaries we've been talking about, go check them out. They're really fascinating. Um, yeah, I, I, it's one of the reasons, like I mentioned, I really wanted to have you on and I'm, I'm really glad to have you here uh, and glad that you're sharing your story. I will conclude with this one question. Uh, what are you currently working on? What can people maybe expect for, for 2020 if they start following along after this conversation? Yeah, follow along. Um, I'm working more in depth on this, on the whole, um, like decolonization, colonization. Um, you know, when I, whenever I'm going anywhere, that's kind of something that I'm focusing on, uh, on one end. And then, uh, a lot of, uh, the documentary is going to film festivals worldwide. So reckoning with the Wendigo, if you're at a film festival, maybe check it out. And, um, I'm also going to be doing a lot more work in Sumatra and India, a little bit more in depth, possibly some stuff with Nat Geo as well. Um, we'll see what comes down the pipeline, but it should be fun. Awesome. So yeah, people, uh, check her out, check out the organization. Thank you, Danielle. This is really, really cool. And it's an honor to have you. So cheers. Cheers. Episode 141 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast is in the books. Thank you to Danielle for coming on this episode. And thank you to all of you Voyagers out there for tuning in. I will catch you very, very soon. And as always, please take care of each other. Bye-bye.